You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Good morning, Cities Church, on this blistering Sunday morning. Walked outside, it was 24 degrees, and I thought, it's a heat wave. I mean, it's, I didn't, I'm not going to wear a coat. I refuse after the week we've had. It's great. You know what else has been hot and fire? The book of Hebrews. Just straight fire. I love it. I have loved the last few weeks of going through this book, and uh, I was telling a couple of the other guys this morning, we, we could preach like seven or eight sermons from chapter two alone. We're not going to, but we could, and uh, it is, there's so much good stuff. I'm so excited to continue through this letter. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into the first, uh, the middle few verses here of chapter two. Father in heaven, you are so kind, merciful gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I sense your kindness and mercy daily. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Lord, I ask that you would use your word to edify your people this morning. Would you shape us, mold us, help us to be more like you? God, would you raise up people in this congregation that love Jesus Would you cause us to be confident that Jesus is better? May that be true. May that shape and inform who we are and how we live our lives. God, I also pray that you would raise up workers from this congregation, church planters and missionaries and pastors, deacons, deaconesses, gospel workers. Would you use your word to raise people up, people who believe that Jesus is better, people that will go out and labor in your harvest field. And lastly, God, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here under the sound of my voice who does not know you, anyone here who is not genuinely born again, God, would today you save them? Would you you rescue their souls? May today be the day that you grant them repentance. They see you for who you truly are. May today be the day they put their faith in Christ, in Christ alone. I pray that in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, before we dive into the first, this middle few verses here of Hebrews chapter 2, we'll do a little bit of a recap. Hebrews chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is exalted. He is the, he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the radiant Son of God, highly exalted. Jesus is better. It's what we see in Hebrews chapter 1. He is superior. And then we see in the first few verses, we saw last week of Hebrews chapter 2, that there's an exhortation. Because Jesus is better, there's something we ought to do. Mainly, we ought to pay close attention. Or he says, pay much closer attention to Jesus. Jesus is better, so pay close attention to Jesus. And the reason why we want to pay close attention to Jesus, because if we don't, if we don't proactively and intentionally pay much more close attention to Jesus, we run the risk of drifting away, he says. Obviously, that would be very bad. We want to give extra attention to Jesus, what we've heard about Jesus, what we've heard that Jesus declared to the apostles that was then passed down to us. And he says this in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4, don't neglect such a great salvation. This salvation we have is 
great. Don't neglect your salvation. And if you are intentionally fighting the propensity to neglect the great salvation, if you fight against the potential of neglect, it will keep you from drifting. It's basically the first chapter and a half of Hebrews. Then we come to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 5, and the writer gives us another reason why he doesn't want us to drift. Look at chapter 2 verse 5. He says this, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, here's the flow of the first chapter and a half, Jesus is better, pay attention to him so that you don't drift because God never promised that angels would rule over the future world. Now, if you're like me, you might pause and go, huh? Now, some of you are like smarter than me and like that makes perfect sense. But if you're like me and you're like, ah, that didn't make perfect sense, you're, you're in good company. At least I'd like to believe I'm good company. So, like, so if, if, you, we, if that doesn't make sense at first thought, that's okay. I had kind of a moment, huh, wait a minute, Jesus is better, pay attention to Jesus so that you don't drift, and the reason you don't want to drift is because angels were never promised to rule over the world to come. That's, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. First, there's an implication that there is a world to come, he says, right? Another English translation calls it the future world, right? So we're living in a present age, but there's also a future world to come. And the New Testament alludes to this and gives all sorts of teachings about this future world, this age to come where all things are renewed and made new, where all things are made new in Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, remember, reminder, one of the reasons why not drifting is really important is because it's not the angels who will be ruling in that age to come. Now, when he uses this language, the writer of Hebrews, when he kind of hits on this theme, there's no doubt that many of us will think about the dominion mandate way back in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, God created the animals and created all of the creatures, created the universe as we know it. And then he created humans. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says, this is God speaking, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Later in the book of Psalms, David says, speaking of God's work, you have made him, humans, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. They were saying, God created humans, and humans are created to be the governors or the managers of all of God's creation. And in creation, we see a pecking order. Uh, Pastor David Mathis mentioned this a few weeks ago. There's it's God, of course, then we have angels, then we have humans, and then we have beasts or animals. And we are the ones made in God's image And we are the ones tasked to have a mandate over this creation. But the angels are still higher than us in this case. We as humans have dominion. We have this mandate to be good managers of God's creation. 
But the angels are still more glorious than us. They're more powerful than us. They're involved in, in things like bringing forth God's law. <clears throat> but God makes it clear the angels are not going to be the ones that are superior in the age to come. The New Testament hints at this and makes comments about the world to come, this future world where at some point we will outrank the angels as humans. The Apostle Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 6.3 when he says to them, do you not know that we are to judge angels? The word judge there can mean reign or have leadership over. In some sense, we don't know exactly how this is going to play out, but in some sense, we will have the ability to govern over more than just the beasts, but we will actually eventually surpass the angels. Right now, the angels are more glorious, more powerful. They outrank us. But in some form, in the future age to come, we will have authority over them. So the angels are not going to rule in that future world, well then who will rule? And why does it matter? And how does the knowledge that the angels will not rule play a role in our no longer drifting? How does knowing that motivate us from drifting? What, what does this business of angels have to do with our not neglecting the great faith? That's the question that the writer of Hebrews is about to answer. He does this by leveraging the Old Testament as he does multiple times already and he continues to do. Look at verse 6. He says, it has been testified somewhere. Pause for a moment. You ever try to quote the Bible and like you forget where it is? Like that's kind of the sentiment here. Not really, but you kind of get a flavor of that. Where it's like, listen, I know it's in Psalms. Somewhere the psalmist said it, okay? If that's you, you're in good company. The writer of Hebrews, that's what he does. He's like, listen, it's been testified. Somewhere we know that it's in there, okay? We know for sure that it says this. What is man? that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. The writer of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 8. I know that because I have software that can tell me that. He didn't have software, so I don't hold, them, I don't hold that against them. Now, if you go back and you read Psalm chapter 8, and you read it in its original context, you, what you see is that it's David who is reflecting upon creation. He's thinking back to the events of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and he's thinking about humanity. It's pretty clear in Psalm 8 that that's at least David's primary or initial thought. He's thinking about human beings, and he's thinking, he's probably thinking about the vastness of creation. He's probably looking at the stars, and, and he's thinking, this is so big, this is so awesome. What is man? What is, a, what is humanity? Who are we that you care so much about us? I would imagine David is just shocked by this. He's surprised, humbled by this. So big, and yet you care in this vast, or we are so small in light of this big creation, and yet you care for us. He is reflecting upon this. David's thinking to himself, God, why are you so concerned about us? As you read the original text in Psalm chapter 8, you sort of get one particular picture. But as you continue to examine how the writer of Hebrews leverages Psalm 8, right? So you read Psalm 8 originally, you get one picture. But if you read Hebrews chapter 2 and how the writer of Hebrews is leveraging uh, Psalm chapter 8, you get, a, you get actually a slightly different picture. Or should, I, should I say a more full picture? Two weeks ago, 
Pastor Joe gave us an example of this when he was looking at the, the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews is looking at Psalm 45 and Psalm 102. If you remember, Pastor Joe covered this two weeks ago. In particular, in Psalm 45, Psalm 45 is talking about a particular person. And it's very clear when you read Psalm 45, he's talking about a real human person. Right, talks about his attributes, his characteristics, celebrates his marriage. It's obviously a, a real human person. And yet also in Psalm 45, it's very clear that this person is more than just a man. He's called God, and then he's said that he has a God. So this regular human being is a God who has a God. And you would imagine that 3,000 years ago, the original readers of Psalm 45 might not fully understand what that meant. But those of us living in the New Testament age, we can read the New Testament, particularly the book of Hebrews, and we have a very clear picture of what Psalm 44 is alluding to. It may not have made full sense to them, but we understand. And we see the same thing here with Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8 seemingly is talking about humanity, right? Mankind is probably what David has on his mind. But as we look at Psalm 8 through the lens of Hebrews, we recognize that it's not only talking about humanity. It's not merely talking about humans, but it's also talking about a particular human. A greater human. Again, in verse 6, Hebrew, writer of Hebrews quoting from Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him? He continues to quote from Psalm 8 in verse 7 here. Hebrews 2, 7, he says this, You made him, speaking of humans it would seem, you made him for a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under him. So if you think about Psalm 8 in its original context, you would think to yourself, oh, Hebrews is talking about humans. This is, a, this is an element where humans are being declared lower than the angels for a little while. This would seem to be anthropological. It's talking about humans. However, at second glance and further study, you realize it's not only talking about humans. It begins to allude to a particular human. There's a particular human who is made lower than the angels for a little while. But just like when humanity was created lower than the angels, and that was not to be forever, this particular human was made lower than the angels for a little while, but that also would not be, that would not go on forever and ever. This entire motif of the lower surpassing the greater is is foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament. We see this idea of the, of the older serving the younger. Right? We see the idea that the older is preeminent because he's first, but eventually the younger will surpass. There's a, there's a flip that happens. We see this with Cain and Abel. Right? Cain is the older. God accepts Abel's offering, but not Cain's offering. We see this with Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is the older son of Abraham, but Isaac, the younger, is the child of promise. We see this explicitly with Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older brother, but the Bible tells us that the older shall serve the younger. We see this with Joseph and Israel. He's the youngest, he's the younger brother, but his older brothers will serve him. We see David as the young boy <clears throat> whose older brothers will then bow down to him. In fact, this is so interesting. 
the, the prophet Samuel comes to Jesse's house and he's like, hey, one of your boys is going to become king. And he, he brings them all in and Samuel's like, wait a minute, none of these are the one. Like, it wasn't even on Jesse's mind to bring David in and have him in the lineup. It didn't make sense. Because of course you're not going to pick the youngest. We're not going to pick David. But we see this motif of the younger surpassing the greater. We see this with John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist is first. He's the preeminent one. He's the, he's the one that's well known. But when he sees Jesus, he says, I must decrease. He must increase. And we see this with the angels. For now, they are more powerful than us. They are more glorious than us. They serve as rulers and guides in this age. But there will come a moment where they, the angels, the older brother, will serve humans, the younger brother. There will come a moment where we, the younger, will surpass the older. But this motif in the Old Testament is not primarily foreshadowing humans and angels. That's not the most important thing that's being foreshadowed in this motif of the younger and the older. The most important is the older Adam and the younger Adam. Or we should say the the first Adam and the second Adam. The, The older Adam, the first Adam, was our first older brother, Adam, who God created in the garden. Adam chose to sin, and we followed him in that, and it brought great corruption on this planet. However, there is a new older brother, younger than the first Adam. The second Adam is now our new brother. We are joined to him by faith, and he will then surpass the first Adam. The second Adam is better than the first Adam. So when we read Hebrews chapter 2, we realize that it's not only talking about humanity, and I would say it's not even primarily talking about humanity, it is primarily referring to Jesus. It is Christological, not merely anthropological. Hebrews chapter 2 is anthropological, it is talking about humanity, but it is talking about more than that. It is not merely anthropological, it is Christological. There's a commentator I read this week, when he asked, someone asked him the question, Is Hebrews 2 anthropological or Christological? He says, yes. Yes. It's both. It's both and. He says, what's most important is that Jesus, who was God, superior to angels, above angels in the pecking order, became lower than the angels for a period of time. Why? Because he wanted to fulfill a particular mandate. God the Father made Jesus for a little while lower than the angels, and then Jesus in his ascension is crowned king. There's a coronation that happens. The Father crowns him with glory and honor, putting everything in, under subject, putting everything in subjection under the feet of Jesus. And Jesus rises above the angels. He, he starts out superior, he's made lower for a little while, and then he surpasses them and goes back to being superior over the angels. And he will bring with him those who are joined to him by faith. The, the imagery you can think of is, imagine, imagine there's this massive uh, structure with a large staircase. And as humans, we're created by God to, to climb this staircase and to enter into, at the top of the staircase, this massive structure, enter into the throne room of God to experience His presence. And we are, we are going up these steps 
toward the presence of God on our way to surpassing angels. But then we sin. The first Adam leads us into destruction and we reject God. And so then we fall down those steps. Then God, who's at the top, stoops down and becomes, comes down the steps, becomes one of us to then bring us back up again. We were on our way, but we could not do it on our own. So Christ brings us with him and he says, you will reign with me forever. Revelation chapter 2, 26 says, the one who conquers and keeps my works till the end, to him I will give authority over nations. Revelation 5.10 says, God has made them a kingdom and priests. They shall reign on earth. Revelation 20 verse 6 says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. They will be priests and they will reign with him. We will reign with Jesus If I'm honest, I don't fully understand exactly what that means in this future age to come. We're going to reign with Jesus forever. But I know that now, while we are lower than the angels, there's a grace at work in our lives propelling us toward that future age, moving progressively beyond the older brother in Christ. What do these passages tell us about, if they're both anthropological and Christological, what, what does this passage tell us about man, and what does this passage tell us about Jesus? It tells us, tells us this about Jesus, that Jesus is fully God and fully human. In fact, I've heard one theologian say that Jesus is truly God and truly human. He is genuinely human, legitimately human. In fact, he's the most human human ever. He is truly human. In the early church, there was a heresy called docetism that basically said Jesus only appears to be human, or he seemed to be human. No, no, no. If he only looked to be human, if he didn't actually come down those steps, if he just stayed up there looking like him or mimicking a human, then he doesn't actually come down and get us. But he had to be actually be a human to come identify with us. And then when he then conquers, he then goes up those steps again and he brings us with him. This passage tells us that Jesus is human. What does this passage tell us about us? It tells us that we are more sinful than we realize and simultaneously more valuable than we realize. We could not make it on our own. Left to our own accord, we would fall down those steps every time and be damned to hell righteously. God would not have been wrong if he said, to hell with you, literally. But God, who is abounding in steadfast love, he enters the human story and he makes a way because he sees us as valuable. He says, they are the ones to reign in the future. Not the angels. The angels right now, they're more powerful, but there's going to come a day where I want the humans to do it. This is why you ought not neglect your salvation, because there is a future, there's an incredible future that God has set for you. Do not neglect this great salvation, because God has a plan for you 
the younger brother, to surpass the older brother, to reign with Christ forever. Tim Keller, many of you are familiar with him, author and pastor out of New York City. Tim Keller says this, in the gospel we see this. We are more sinful and more flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. In and of ourselves, we are more sinful and more flawed, but in Christ, we are more loved and more accepted. And that's ultimately what the writer of Hebrews is alluding to here. You as humans were so sinful, you needed a savior, but you're so valuable that God himself became that savior. And we will reign with him forever. Look at verse eight with me. It says this, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subjected to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subjected to them. Some uh, English translations use the word him here. Some use the word them. It is singular, and this is where commentators sometimes argue, but I do, I'm convinced that it's referring to both humans and Jesus. All things are being subjected under Jesus and ultimately being subjected under humans because we are in Christ. Now, of course, there's a tension here. The writer of Hebrews will, he highlights this. He says, yet at present time, we don't see everything subjected. Wait a minute, you're telling me that God made everything subject to Jesus, but this world doesn't look like it's subjected to Jesus right about now. We look around and we see disease and devastation, divorce. We see miscarriages and disappointments and heartbreaks. We see war and famine. We see abortion on demand being celebrated. We see toxic politics and corrupt governments. We see absurd views of sexuality. We see a world that does not seem to be subjected to the Lordship of Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is addressing this tension. Yes, at present time, we do not see these things subjected. That doesn't mean that they're not subjected. Everything has been brought under the Lordship of Christ, and he is in the process of making that clear. And the primary instrument he uses to do that is humanity. Through us, he is bringing all things. It will be clear to everyone that all things have been subjected to Jesus. Theologians refer to this as inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology, the study of end times, or study of last things. There's this last thing, this ultimate thing where all things are made new, And that eschatology, that idea has already been inaugurated. Sometimes in layman's terms, this is referred to as the the already but not yet. Already, not yet. Christ is already ruling and reigning over everything, but we don't yet see it in its full manifestation. He addresses, we we don't see it from our perspective. It doesn't seem like everything has been subjected to Jesus. That's what he says in verse nine, but, But here's what we do see. In verse 9, he starts, he says this, we see Jesus. We take a step back. We don't see every, it doesn't seem like everything is subjected to Jesus. But you know what we do see? We see Jesus. 
humanity has seen Jesus, and that changes everything. We see Jesus, as it says here in the the last few words of verse 9, we see Jesus tasting death for everyone. Jesus suffered, died a wicked death. Should have been me on that cross. It should have been you on that cross. But Jesus dies in our place. He suffers, he dies, and then he raises from the dead. He ascends into the throne room of God, surpasses the angels, and he's coronated as the king. He has conquered death. So when you take a step back and you see that this world doesn't look like it's subjected to Jesus, the writer of Hebrews is reminding you, yeah, yeah, you don't see that right now, but you know what you do see? You see Jesus, exalted high, coronated as king, having already defeated death and the grave. And if you see that, you see Jesus has already taken out the big bad enemy, death. Well, then you know he's going to take everything else out as well. When you have moments in your life where you sense or you, you are afraid or you feel insecure, you sense that God is not in control of this, where you're tempted to believe that Jesus is not ruling and reigning over these things, you pause, you take a step back, and you remember Jesus who died, rose again, ascended, and was made superior once again above the angels. Remind yourself of that, and it will strengthen you in the face of moments where it seems like Jesus is not in control. This is why the writer of Hebrews is saying, pay close attention to what we've heard. We've heard that he rose from the dead. We've heard these things. When you're tempted to drift away from that, intentionally, proactively, Pay much more closer attention to Jesus. Last thought in the, in ver- in the last few words of verse 9. It says that Jesus tasted death, and it tells us how he did it. It says in verse 9, by the grace of God. By the grace of God. The grace of God. There is a grace from God that was at work in Jesus And through that grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone, and he defeated death, that big bad enemy. It is by the grace of God. And it is by that grace of God, as we look to Jesus, it is by that grace of God that we will be strengthened and encouraged in the midst of this age. The Apostle Paul says this to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He says, by the grace of God... I am what I am, and, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The grace of God that is with me. Paul's saying, I worked really hard to get where I'm at, but it wasn't my efforts that got me where I'm at. It was the grace of God. The implication is, let's work hard. But remember that it is not our work that propels us forward. It is the grace of God. We work hard. We do all that we do. We listen to the commands of Jesus. We play, we we give extra attention. We pay much closer attention to what we've heard about Jesus. We work hard to make sure we understand 
Jesus. We work hard to make sure we obey the teachings of Jesus. And as we do that, God bestows His grace that strengthens us. And it is not our work that propels us. It is the grace of God with you that propels you. The grace of God that strengthens you and prepares you for the age to come. When the younger surpasses the older, when humans reign with Christ, when we judge angels and we serve with him in the world to come forever and ever. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you again for the book of Hebrews, the opportunity we have this year to go through this book. Would you continue to mold us, I ask? Use this book to shape us. God, would you protect us from drifting away? Would you protect us from neglecting the great salvation that we have? God, we look forward to that world to come, that future world and the future grace that we will experience in that world. And God, I pray that you would, that you would strengthen us as we draw upon that future grace. May that future grace propel us. May the grace of God fill us, be with us, strengthen us, and prepare us for the mandate you have set before us. God, may, may the knowledge that we will experience that grace in full one day, may, that, may the knowledge of that sustain us today to continually look to Jesus. Would you help us do that, I ask? In Christ's name, amen. And now we come to the table. We come to this table every single week to remember Jesus, to consider Jesus, to look to Jesus. We partake in this meal every week to remember what Christ has done, that he was up top, he came down those stairs, those steps, that he tasted death by the grace of God for us so that we could be rescued and redeemed. If you are a believer in Jesus today, if you have put your hope and faith in Christ, I invite you to partake. This meal is for you. If you are here, however, today, and you are not a believer in Jesus, if you have not put your faith in Christ, when the bread and the wine come, I ask, just let it pass. But don't let the moment pass. Instead of taking communion with us today, instead, I implore you, take Christ. If you don't understand what that means. You're going to have a conversation on what it looks like to believe in Jesus. I'd love to have a conversation with you. I'll be up here after the service. would love to talk to you about that. The pastors are going to come in just a moment. We'll pass the bread first. It's gluten-free. Take one, hold it. We'll partake together. <clears throat> Afterwards, we will pass out the wine. <clears throat> the body, excuse me, the bread. Sorry, <laughs> um, scratching out my notes, I get distracted. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.